Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday saw the Ontario government announce its latest budget, which has been met with some concerns, like pretty much every other budget before. We talk with the Ontario Finance Minister to find out more and also speak with Jay Goldberg from the Ontario Taxpayers Federation for his take on that. We're hearing from experts that the third wave of COVID-19 is here, and it's going to be worse than the first two waves. We'll get details about the implications of that. And some countries seem to be holding back their vaccines for their own people, despite orders from other countries, like Canada. What is the threat, and how are we going to fix it? That's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday was Budget Day. And uh, the Finance Minister, Peter Bethlenfalvy, uh, rose in the Ontario legislature and delivered the budget. And, uh, well, it's received mixed reaction, as most budgets do. But uh, we are so pleased to welcome uh, the Minister of Finance, uh, the Honourable Peter Bethlenfalvy, back to the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML and CFPL to uh, talk about this. Mr. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again on a very busy day for you, I'm sure. Great to be with you again, Bill, uh, virtually. And uh, we've done it in studio before, and we'll do it again in studio. <laughs> I'm hoping sooner than later, Minister. Uh, i got to ask you right up front, as I was looking at some of the numbers and watching the presentation yesterday, uh, in your old job uh, as a co-president of uh, DBRS Limited, one of the things that you had to do, of course, was kind of expose government overspending and, and, and shine a light on that. With that in mind, how comfortable are you now with taking Ontario even deeper down the deficit rabbit hole? Well, I'm comfortable because this is the right thing to do. Uh, this pandemic is not over. We're we're in the third wave. We haven't. Uh, we've only started really to vaccinate all Ontarians. As soon as the supplies come in from Ottawa, we'll uh, we'll get those vaccines into people's arms because that's that's the number one job that we have to do. And uh, we're going to keep going to uh, defeat this pandemic, this invisible enemy. So so that's job number one. But you know, as a as a former credit rating agency guy, what I always valued is governments that are transparent and accountable. So I've. I've laid out the numbers, uh, and this government and this uh, um, finance minister goes out every quarter to tell the people of Ontario, "This is uh, these are the numbers, and here's how we spent your money." And I think that's that's uh, the important thing here. And we've paid uh, heedance to in, in catching up on a lot of investments that are long overdue in our healthcare system, our long-term care, mental health, and addiction. And Bill, I I just think uh, investments in health is investments in our long-term uh, economic prosperity. The concern about the investment with the long-term care, and I know the, the Premier hinted at this, and you underscored it again yesterday with uh, some of the numbers that you made, uh, is, and is that it's, it's for later. It's, it's, it's a commitment to beds down the road, uh, where the need is right now. As, as, as many people have told me on this show over the last couple of months, uh, I mean, we need these things yesterday, not two or three years down the way. Well, I, I'm glad you raised that because uh, I'm certainly a former, I'm a business guy and uh, now in government, and really uh, the sense of urgency has to be there. And on so many things that we provide to the people of Ontario, and one of them is long-term care capacity, uh, woefully underbuilt over the last decade. Uh, you know, only 611 new beds were built from 2011 to 2018. We've committed to build 30,000. We've announced 20,000. But let me tell you this. We announced four uh, rapid builds, what we call rapid builds, and we're funding those to be built in uh, various parts of the GTA so that we can get over 1,000 beds by the end of next year. Like, uh, in fact, uh, by the end of, sorry, this year, early next year, we've got shovels in the ground. I've got one in Ajax Pickering. There's one in Toronto and one in Mississauga. So we aren't waiting. We're building capacity right now. 
child care, another one. I know we're kind of just doing bullet points here, but I know your time is limited. Uh, you, you addressed child care. You talked about the, the, the C-session, uh, the fact that women, of course, have been tremendously adversely impacted by what's gone on uh, with the COVID uh, pandemic and the, uh, the resulting impact that it's had on the economy. Uh, and, and just about all the experts, including yourself, Minister, have talked about child care as one of the key building blocks in, in getting women back into the workforce. Uh, the criticism about what you were talking about yesterday is that uh, you're, you're talking about giving money to families for child care, but they're not creating spaces. The money doesn't do a whole lot of good if you can't find a place for your child to go. Well, we announced uh, building 30,000 new spaces. We've uh, built uh, and announced 20,000. I got uh, the first new school in, uh, in Pickering in 20 years in my riding. Uh, that's going to have, I think, 90, uh, almost 90 new child care spaces. So we're, we're actually uh, been doing that uh, for the last two years. So we're increasing the capacity there, absolutely. You mentioned the child care tax credit. We're topping that up. Where you mentioned the support for families, so money to parents, the $400 per child, uh, $500 per child with special needs, and that's money right into their pockets. And, uh, and of course, uh, we, we are going to continue to... Uh, to focus on women as we rebuild this economy because they face numerous barriers. They've been, as you said, disproportionately hit. So uh, we want to we have an inclusive uh, uh, re, re, uh, rebuilding of this province, and, and that's very important to me. Different parts of the province have been impacted in different ways in this. Is, is, and you talked about broad-based programs, of course, yesterday, but are there specific examples uh, where you're going to target certain areas that may have been harder hit than others? Well, we do have, um, you know, we, we did announce the Regional Opportunities Investment Tax Credit, a doubling of that. That's going to help uh, some of the regions that have been uh, and haven't grown as much over the last decade. We, we announced a province-wide expansion of broadband, really unprecedented and historic in, uh, in Canada. There's no one close to us on that because I, I, I think they're the highways of uh, the 21st century. And, and to connect people for education, to connect to your loved ones, to the justice system, the health care system, Everyone's needed to need to be connected. So uh, we've got a lot of programs also for those disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So uh, we're putting in a lot more money to help uh, retrain and reskill individuals who've lost their jobs and maybe they want to go into a new career. So we're helping with the funding there and a lot more in the skilled trades. We're building so much stuff, like I just mentioned, long-term care homes, uh, hospitals, uh, uh, the, obviously, the transit, the highways, uh, we're going to need so many skilled trades, and they're great jobs, so we're promoting uh, that and putting in a lot of investment to help those who want to get into the skilled trades, including women. We don't have enough women in, in the skilled trades. These are great-paying jobs, and there's more jobs than, than people. So we're doing a lot uh, broad-based for all of Ontario. Uh, notwithstanding how people might be a fiscal conservative uh, when when it comes to budgets and, and watching the bottom line, I, I don't think anybody's going to get come down too hard on any government that's spending these days because of the pandemic. These are desperate times which call for a totally different set of circumstances. Uh, but, but again, I'm talking about some of the financial critics I've been listening to over the last 12 hours or so, Minister, and they're saying we get that, uh, but we don't see the plan to get out of this hole. Uh, we, you, know, we, you talked about a year in which you might be able to do this, but you're not saying how. How do you respond to that? No, we have a plan. Uh, I tabled that plan, and I did it in a very transparent and accountable way. Uh, and I think, uh, listen, we've had two budgets in this pandemic already. The federal government will be announcing their first budget in over two years. I believe it's important to have a plan, Bill. I think it's important to put it out there and be held accountable and be transparent. But i got to tell you, the way we're going to uh, uh, ultimately balance this budget, it's not through tax hikes, it's hikes, it's not through uh, cuts to spending, it's really uh, threefold. One is 
um, growing the economy. We, we, you know, Ontario used to be the economic engine of Confederation, and, and we lost our way in Ontario. And before the pandemic, this government was creating more jobs than any other province in Canada. Uh, I want to rekindle that. Uh, it's important to the Premier, and I'm going to bet on the people of Ontario. They're, they're resourceful, they're entrepreneurial, innovative. We've got the best talent. Really, in, in, in North America, I think world-class education. The second way is modernize. There's, I'm a big digital fan to deliver things uh, to people. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that the connectivity. We're doing healthcare that way, education, and so on. And finally, I'm, I'm really calling on the federal government to do their fair share on the Canada health transfers. And just so people remember, your listeners, you know, when Medicare started, it was 50% federal, 50% provincial. That's how we paid for it. Fast forward today, many things have happened. We're now at 22%. So every premier across Canada and the territories is calling on the, the federal government to provide back to levels, uh, more historical levels of federal funding for health care, 35%. That would mean over $10 billion immediately for, uh, for Ontario. And I think it's the right thing to do. It's a historic moment to, to spend on health care for our seniors, for mental health and addiction, for long-term care. And I'm really calling on the federal government. This is a nation-building moment. Well, uh, we're certainly going to be watching the federal minister, uh, Ms. Freeland, when she does over her budget in a few weeks, too. Uh, I know your time is tight for our listeners. A day after a budget like this, uh, the finance minister is uh, being t- pulled about 16 different ways now uh, to doing this media, that media. So we really do appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, lots more to talk about, but I'm sure we'll have time down the road for this. Thank you again, minister, for the time today. I'll be back on, Bill, and I appreciate the time with you. Okay, thanks again. Peter Bethlenfalvy, of course, the Minister of Finance for the province of Ontario, delivering the budget yesterday. Lots of reaction, uh, some positive, some very critical of, of what was said yesterday and the promises or some of the non-promises, I guess, uh, that were uh, made yesterday by the Minister. Joining us now to talk about uh, their perspective on this is uh, Jay Goldberg. Jay is the Interim Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Jay, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us on this very busy morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, what was your reaction to what you heard yesterday and what you just heard from the minister now? Well, unfortunately, what we heard from the minister is that the province has no clear plan to balance the budget uh, in the medium term. Uh, we certainly agree with the finance minister that there are certain investments to be made uh, in healthcare at this time, particularly as we deal with the pandemic. But if you look into the details of the budget, the, even under the most optimistic scenarios, the province isn't planning to balance the budget for another eight years at minimum, uh, and they're relying on some pretty shaky numbers to be able to do that. Um, and we're going to hit, within two years, a half a trillion dollars of debt in this province that's been accumulated. And we think it's important that after we deal with the pandemic, we move towards a more balanced budget in particular, and um, that's, that's what we're calling for. Jay, do you think Canadians actually have their eyes wide open to, to what's going on down the road? I mean, you know, we're in a very, very traumatic time right now, and we all get that, and we're looking for help. I mean, there are people that are still unemployed, underemployed. Uh, there are a number of programs, and, and the government, uh, governments, I guess we should say, is trying to address this. But uh, there's a price to pay for this down the road. I mean, this is like going on a spending spree with your, your visa card uh, and forgetting about the fact that at some point you got to pay this thing back. Yeah, well, it seems like the uh, government's been getting their credit card bill and they're leaving it on the counter without ever opening it. Uh, It seems that that's been their approach. Look, Ontario's been in a deficit position for 14 years in a row now. And even though interest rates are low, we're spending more than a billion dollars a month on debt interest, which is more than the province is spending on post-secondary education. So that should be concerning to all Ontarians. 
And, and with that in mind, and that's not going to go away, as you say. I mean, it, it, that visa bill that you don't open doesn't just disappear. They don't say, oh, I guess, okay, well, just forget about it for now. Uh, it, it, it just mounts and mounts and mounts, and that's going to be problematic. And I, I guess my concern is, as a taxpayer and as a citizen who's concerned about uh, not just our financial situation but about quality of life here, uh, somewhere down the road and not too far down the road, uh, governments are going to have to make some pretty tough decisions because they're going to have to start paying that back, and, and the money doesn't grow on trees here. Absolutely. We already, as I said, we're going to spend $13.1 billion just on servicing our debt this year. And that could go up very significantly if um, interest rates go up. That's absolutely a concern. So where do we go from here? I, I mean, are, are we looking for a game plan? And I, I know the minister said he laid out a, a, a repayment plan, how they were going to get out of this. But as you say, a lot of this is uh, dependent upon other things happening. In other words, an economic upturn, uh, what some of the economists are talking about, about the fact that we as consumers are going to start spending lots and lots of money as soon as we're able to when everybody gets out of this uh, pandemic and lockdown situation. And, and that may be a contributing factor, but governments are going to have to get involved in this too. They can't just assume that, you know, all boats are going to rise with a new tide no and i have to say with all due respect to the finance minister that suggesting you're going to balance a 33 billion dollar deficit without cutting spending or raising taxes that's just not realistic we know that down the road the government is going to have to do something their projections right now are based on relatively low interest rates so even if that changes that means even eight years from now we not might not be balancing the budget but you can't get rid of a $33 billion deficit without taking action uh, and restraining your spending. It's just not going to happen. Well, that's government 101, isn't it? And I guess we need to remind ourselves about that, Jay, from time to time. You know, governments don't have money. They have our money. Uh, or unless they borrow it, of course, which is even you know more problematic because the interest rate is accumulative too. But you're right. I mean, if governments want to reduce that line, uh, you can either reduce the money that you spend, which means cutting programs, or increase taxes, which means increasing revenue, or a combination of both, I guess. And 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 I think it's right for us to at least ask governments, how do you plan to do this? What's your plan? And and I know there's some concern about what's going on here in Ontario. Uh, we're certainly going to be asking the same questions in a month or so when the the federal finance minister. Uh, introduces her first budget and, uh, and addresses uh, the deficit that the federal government is accumulating. Absolutely. And uh, we're seeing finally the Trudeau government's going to table a budget after more than two years. Uh, we tabled budgets at the federal level during World War One and World War Two. So I'm not exactly sure why the federal government's taken so long to table a budget. But it's concerning at the federal level as well. We're already spending more on debt interest at the federal level than we do on our entire national defense budget. Uh, so the federal government's in a very similar position to here in Ontario. We had a relatively good fiscal position a number of years ago, but over the last several years, and especially during the pandemic, our finances are starting to get out of control. And at both levels, it seems we have governments that aren't willing to make tough decisions down the road after the pandemic to really get our finances in order. Well, it's, uh, I guess, uh, worthy of, of noting here, because I think it is relevant to the conversation, that uh, we don't know when the next federal election is going to be. The rumors are it's going to be within the next couple of weeks or months. And we know there's a provincial election coming up next spring, but a year from now, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure that they're trying to be overly cautious now because they don't want to be the bearers of bad news. But it's it's going to be pretty bitter pill for us to swallow when that happens. Jay, we're uh, up against the clock. I really appreciate you jumping in on this. Uh, uh, we'll obviously have a lot more time to discuss this in further detail down the road, and I look forward to your input then. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Take care. Jay Goldberg, of course, with the Ontario Taxpayers Federation. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, here we are more than a year later, and uh, we've had a second wave, and it was horrific, and now we are told there is a third wave. Some people are actually disputing that. Uh, I, I don't understand exactly why, but I guess that's the mindset. I know there's pandemic fatigue that has set in. A lot of people are just trying to be dismissive and say enough already with the masks and the social distancing. Uh, but the numbers don't lie, and we need to look at the numbers to get the true story to what's going on, uh, which is why we turn to our, our next guest uh, to, to try to give us some idea about what's going on here. Uh, Paul Mitchell is the CEO for Scarson Modeling and Forecasting, who look at these numbers and tell us exactly what the numbers say and, and possibly where we're going in uh, in the future, especially when it comes to the pandemic. Uh, Paul, welcome. Great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me on again, Bill. Let's let's talk a little bit about about some of the numbers. And we, we just got an update, and we're going to get another one from the province here in about an hour or so about the new cases uh, of the, what we are calling, and I think what the province is now calling, the third wave. Uh, I don't know, Paul, that anybody thought it was going to be this severe or this long-lasting, but the, the numbers are telling us that it's uh, this third wave, especially with these variants, is, is something that we need to be concerned about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um I think the you know the numbers are are pretty telling at this stage. Um, you know they're definitely you know is going to be a third wave. I think a number of jurisdictions in Canada are already well underway. Um, Ontario probably being one of the leading ones. It's you know really seen uh, an uptick in the cases. And um, there's actually a really great site that the uh, Ontario Science Table has out now. It's their dashboard site, and it. It does a really good job of showing how the uh, the variants are growing um, in Ontario, in particular, and uh, I think it tells uh, quite a concerning story for for all of us as we kind of move through phase or wave three. Yeah, it's, and again, we're trying to get a handle on, on exactly what it is we're dealing with. And, and I know epidemiology is not your field. You're a smart guy, Paul, but I know that's not one of the areas you get into. But uh, but when we get that advice and they talk about what we are dealing with here, uh, this is not the same as what we experienced a year ago. It's a variant of this, and it's a more uh, aggressive variant of this, and apparently a more deadly uh, various, uh, variant than uh, the one we were dealing with back in March and April of last year. Uh, and we need to be aware of that. And the numbers, I guess, pretty much indicate uh, what uh, many of those experts had told us about about how quickly this can spread. Yeah, and and, and the the site that I just mentioned there, it, it does an incredibly good job of of kind of presenting that in a way where it's it's very black and white. Um, it basically shows the reproductive rate, the rate at which um, the two different types of of COVID are are reproducing, the early variant and then the variants of concern, and and it's it's incredibly uh, clear there that what's driving this growth is uh, the variants, um, and it's driving it up at a rate where it's kind of moving through those levels of framework, right, from yellow to orange to red. So there's no doubt that's what's driving it. Um, and as you said, um, it's not only more transmissive, but can lead to uh, potentially more severe cases and, and even potentially uh, higher mortality. Well, as we were tracking the numbers, and, and I know you guys do this on a daily basis, the thing that really caught my attention, Paul, 
was was we were told by by the experts that there's possibly going to be a third wave, uh, and we were told that there were now variants, and and of course that raised a million questions among all of us. Well, what what do you mean? Uh, and it's 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 these things morph as as every virus does. The flu virus very there's variants in that too, which is why we have to get a flu shot every year because we don't know which one's going to come along. But we heard about the UK and the South African variant and a California variant, uh, and we thought okay, and there'd be one or two cases of that. But what amazes me, Paul, is how quickly those variants, the new cases of the variants, have now superseded the, the ones from the old virus. I mean, it's, it, that, that, I think, speaks to just how rapidly this can spread. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think of it kind of in animal terms, it's just, it's, it's a predator, right? So it's, it's going to overcome that, that older variant. And um, I'm not sure, I mean, you know, there was some evidence from Europe earlier on. I think we were all quite hopeful that Canada maybe would progress a little bit slower, but it's definitely now in very, very high growth phase. Um, and, you know, when you take it, what does that mean to, you know, the average listener there? Um, you know, we've all been cautious for a year, um, given what was out there. And, and this is definitely uh, much higher risk. So, you know, even though we're, we're all fatigued, I am, I've been stuck in a house for a year. Um, we can't let our guards down. In fact, we have to be almost even more vigilant right now, because you can get this with even less exposure. And I think we all feel like the vaccines are out and, you know, so maybe we don't need to worry as much. Yes, the vaccines are out and they're ultimately going to be the thing that takes us out of this. Um, but, you know, clearly the variants have moved faster than the vaccines. So, you know, we have to be very careful and in, in all of these, you know, masks, distancing, what's, you know, needed social contact and that definitely for the next, 30 to 60 days. Well, because we have to be realistic about this, and I don't know that too many of us are right now. Because I, I, I share the same feelings as you do. I've been working from home for from home rather for about a year now too, uh, as many of our, our colleagues have uh, right around the country, for that matter. And and you get a little tired. You say, "Oh, come on, it's about time. Let's just you know just back off." And now we're finding out that this could be even more dangerous. Uh, and we get this false sense of security. I mean, I agree with you. The vaccines are ultimately uh, going to be the weapon that's going to help us to defeat this thing, or at least to, you know, to contain this thing. And, and we're not there yet. I mean, what, the number I saw earlier this week, Paul, was that I, I think it was like 2.5% of the population have been vaccinated. We need to be up over 95 uh, for herd immunity to take place. We've got a long way to go. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the positive thing about where we're at now um is that any of the high-risk people, so people in long-term care or, or the elderly, any of those people that have been uh, vaccinated, even if they've only had one, they're, they're very well protected. And um, so that, that kind of separates, you know, how many cases do we have versus who's actually getting the cases. And so I think the one positive there is, you know, you know we're seeing kind of less elderly people getting it because of that. Um, and they're usually the ones that have the most risk of dying and, and being in the hospital. But there is also, though, um, you know, I think solid anecdotal stuff coming out that, you know, some of the younger, healthier people are actually getting sicker with the new variant. So that's obviously of, of great concern. 
Yeah, and, and that's the thing that we didn't see with the the first wave and possibly even for the second as well. Uh, I, I think a lot of people in the younger demographic probably thought that they were, well, at least one politician said they were immune from it. They're not. Uh, and the numbers are, are, are telling a story here, too, that that younger demographic, that under 25 uh, so demographic, uh, has seen a real spike in new cases. And that may well be reflected about their behavior. Uh, you know, maybe they don't believe in masking and social distancing to the extent. Uh, heaven knows we saw, and I know you saw, uh, the pictures uh, from uh, Florida last week. It was the U.S. March breakdown there, and of course they all go to the sunspots, and uh, it was it was out of control, really. And and you know we hate to think of what those numbers are going to look like as a result of of those get-togethers. But I think it just speaks to, as you said, uh, you know where we are emotionally right now and psychologically, uh, and it, it's it's really tough to I guess to to sum it up enough, you know, fortitude to simply say, look at I got to keep on course here. It's 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 pretty difficult for a lot of us. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, I think I mentioned to you before I had a kidney transplant, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm very high risk. I haven't been vaccinated. I have to kind of remind myself every day that, you know, my risk of getting this and my risk of potentially going to the hospital dying is actually higher now than it probably has ever been so far in the pandemic. Um, and so I have to remind myself, look, you know, not only should I not be letting my guard down, I should probably be even more potentially thoughtful in the next uh you know 30 to 60 days and and again i you know we do feel that as the vaccines really um get pushed out there it it will you know really start to have um a strong benefit in in decelerating the cases um but you know we always have to keep in mind too you know there's always there's uncertainty about virtually every aspect of this and you know there's been a lot of news about the az vaccine and some recent reports about the eu thinking they might restrict exports. So, you know, it's a very fluid situation. And I think it it just, again, comes back to we need to continue to be vigilant um, and, uh, you know, not kind of wave off this this wave three. I mean, a lot of our modeling is showing the wave three in a lot of jurisdictions will exceed what happened in wave two in terms of cases. How does that make his, you feel as, as a vulnerable individual that, uh, that you know, we're not, not only why are we not out of this, uh, but we may be facing our biggest challenge yet? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have the same anxieties, I think, that tons of people do. Um, you know, I'm, you know, desperate to be able to go online and book my vaccine. You know, I'm hoping that will be in April. Um, definitely changes my risk profile, but it also still, you know, we're, we're, we're a society together. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't all be pulling towards the goal of getting everybody in Ontario out of that. Um, and I think, you know, at this stage, you know, the numbers are going to continue to go up. People need to kind of, you know, take that for what it is and not dismiss it. Because I, I share your concern. I mean, I've talked to a number of people who, by the way, are in the same circumstances as you. Might have been an organ transplant, uh, a number with autoimmune diseases, cancer patients who are more vulnerable, of course, because their autoimmune system is is down, uh, sometimes because of the medication. 
Uh, and, and I think there was an expectation from a lot of them, Paul, uh, before this whole thing rolled out, uh, that they were going to be near the top of the list. I mean, obviously, we wanted people in long-term care to, and, and first responders there. But I, I and I personally expected uh, to p- see people like you and, and so many others that I've talked to uh, closer to the top of the list. And I, I'm not quite sure what the prioritization is right now. But uh, I, I, know, I know that vaccine availability plays a role in this as well. But uh, it just adds to the frustration and angst, I guess, that we're all feeling. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the one thing we have to keep in mind is nothing is easy around the decision making. You know, there, there, are, there are demands from lots of different stakeholder groups. Every stakeholder group has a story of why they should be uh, prioritized. Um, so, so it's a, a challenge. I mean, I guess the way I look at it is, of course, I, you know, uh, I wish people that were at highest risk, um, in addition to age, you know, were at the front. But you know, if it's an extra few weeks. Um, you know, I just have to stay vigilant until that. Um, but, you know, I think, again, you know, we need to kind of recognize everybody plays a role in this. And, um, you know, I think be ready to respond. I think there's no doubt. Like, it's it's growing at rates where, you know, we're going to be asked um, as citizens to, again, you know, likely make sure we're limiting our behavior. Um because in, in this one here, a lot of what potentially is controlling wave three is the vaccines. Yeah. Right? So it's much more vaccines than doing the stay at home order. So the less we, you know, the less we lead to that, the less probable they'll have to take more stringent measures. So there's, there's something in it for everyone by continuing to stay uh, kind of vigilant in this period. Paul, let me ask you, uh, you at uh, Sarskin Modeling and Forecasting uh, have been analyzing these numbers from the beginning, of course. So we've gone through phase one and looked at that uh, data, phase two, and now, according to the experts, we're, we're into phase three. We're not so sure how deeply you are into it. Uh, both the first and second phases led us to some form of lockdowns where they just said, all right, enough of it, just turn the lights out, wait a few weeks, and let's see what happens then. Uh, based on the data you're seeing, and it's accumulating now in phase three, uh, are politicians going to have to make that decision sooner than later? Um, well, they're definitely going to have to face um, tough decisions as the cases rise, and, and they're already rising. And they don't, you know, at this stage, the momentum you're seeing, it's not like it's all of a sudden going to stop. It's going to continue to grow. So they're going to be faced with that, um, and they're faced with a very tough balancing decision of, um, you know, the implications mental health-wise, uh, business-wise, and so on. Um, I think a lot of the balance of that is, is again, uh, how the vaccines are, are playing out with that. So, um, you know, it's not going to be an easy decision. Um, and I think, you know, when they've crossed that bridge and how well and effective the vaccines are being deployed will be kind of a big determinant in what, what kind of framework they implement. And, and that, that's the situation. I mean, we want to go back again a year. Uh, you know, when we were coming out of that first phase, which is just around, uh, you know, April, that, May, that time of year, uh, they were easing restrictions. You know, okay, you can maybe play a little bit of golf in some places and things of this nature. And that, I think, uh, you know, assuaged a lot of the, the, the mental concerns that we were going through right now to actually go into that nice warmer weather when we want to be outdoors more often and all of a sudden say, well, everything's closed for three weeks, if that's what it's going to be, uh, is, is going to be somewhat problematic. I don't know anybody that wants to do it, including politicians, but, uh, you know, the numbers, as, as you guys tell us, don't uh, they don't lie. Uh, they tell a story, and there's a, a very it's a very disturbing trend, something that we really need to pay attention to, isn't there? Yeah, and I think the one thing I haven't 
mentioned on this side was um, the um, the hospitalizations. I mean, one of the things that um, I think quite concerning, um, particularly when you look at Ontario, is you know, the number of people in the ICU um, from second wave, I mean, there's a little bit of a dip, but not much. So we're kind of going into the third wave with still a significant number of beds um, filled relating to people almost from the second. So I think the last time I looked, it was 370. So, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on, um, you know, as we start adding uh Beds here, you know, again, will likely exceed the amount of beds that were in wave two. And so hospital capacity is is definitely a very, I think, big concern here, um, particularly if it's somehow drawing in younger, healthier people into beds. Well, uh, here's hoping that, uh, that, as you say, that I, it's not going to just happen overnight that, that we see a decrease in this. There's going to have to be a change in behavior, uh, ramping up of the vaccine program. There's a number of different factors here, which is why we rely on folks like uh, like you, Paul, and, and your uh, great company there at uh, Scarson Modeling uh, to tell us what the numbers tell us, and because that's where the trends are. And that's basically, as we've been saying for the last year, uh, the numbers that, that you guys are analyzing are the same numbers the government looks at, and that's how they determine policy, whether there's going to be lockdown or what's going to stay open, what's going to stay closed and when we can get back to quote unquote normal whenever that might be uh more to come on this as they say in the business because the numbers are changing on almost on a weekly basis thanks so much for this paul it's great talking with you again uh, stay well and i know we'll talk again soon well thank you very much bill you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml i want to talk about the announcement from yesterday which caused a great deal of consternation and that was uh from uh, both uh, the eu and from india that they were holding back and going to curtail uh the delivery of some of the vaccines that have been ordered uh simply because well they said there were some concerns about productivity in some of those places but uh, also to make, ensure that uh, that the people in those countries uh, were getting their fair share and uh, there, there's numbers that, that will i think validate some of the concerns that are here but what does this mean for canada uh, the short answer is we don't know yet uh, you know, the ministers in charge here, including uh, Minister Anita Anand, are saying that uh, it's not going to have any impact at all. The prime minister is hoping it's not going to. Uh, but we're not sure. And, and we're not sure what the long-term and short-term ramifications are going to be with that decision. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Cybill Ray. Dr. Ray is a James McGill Professor of Operations Management at the DeSalto Management, uh, Faculty of Management, rather, and Academic Director at the uh, Besodian School of Retail Management. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks. That's, first and foremost, uh, were, you, were you surprised by the announcements yesterday? Uh, mm, uh, the Indian part, yes. Uh, the EU part, uh, there there was some grumbling going on for quite some time. So uh, so that that was not a, a too much of a surprise. The Indian part was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, let's face it. There's, you know, we all wanted to, th- to think that politics wasn't going to play a part in vaccine distribution, uh, but that seems to be a factor in the EU decision, wasn't it? There's a, I think, a great deal of consternation about the, the situation in the UK right now. Uh, you know, they're they're bragging about how well they're doing, and, and God bless them for you know coming up as well as they did. But uh, the numbers that we saw yesterday said Britain has administered 45 doses for 100 people. The EU is only 13 for every 100, and Canada is even behind that with only 11. Uh, and they're producing vaccines in the UK, but they're not sharing them, but they're certainly taking them from everybody else. So I can understand there'd be a little bit of concern there. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when, like, when many of the things, as you said, many of the things in Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca are being produced in EU countries. And uh, 
they are seeing some uh, new neighbor, uh, a neighbor is getting all the benefits and they are they are uh, they are not getting all the benefits that comes from production inside because at least in canada there is no production but in eu they are, they are producing in eu countries and not getting the benefits well, and on top of that, as we all know, uh, yeah. it's, shall we say, an acrimonious relationship between the EU and the UK oh, yeah, right now so, because yeah, of Brexit. Yeah, this, this so is coming from the Brexit to some extent, basically, yeah. So absolutely. yeah, there's still some hard feelings there, right? Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you that, just uh, with your expert opinion on that, though, Doctor, uh, when the announcement was made yesterday, there are some who are speculating that this was basically directed at the U.K., that it's not worldwide, as, as some yeah. people have interpreted this, yeah. uh, but they couldn't specifically name the U.K., but in, yeah. the, in other words, that's who they tried to do. And that may, yeah. that, may, that may rationalize what the EU did, but the India situation is totally different, isn't it? Yeah, you are absolutely right. I, I think uh, uh, you are right about the EU part that it is mainly geared towards, and even the the two uh, criteria that they put, it is very much geared towards uh, UK about the proportionality and uh, about what is happening, uh, what is the uh, uh, epidemiological situation. All of these are geared very much towards the uh, UK, and indeed in both these cases. Uh, Canada is not a part. I Means Canada's situation, as you said, is not as good even as EU. EU forget about UK, and it is. Uh, we do not produce anything, so there is no question of export ban or anything like that from our side. So it was geared very much towards UK. Uh, the Indian part, I was expecting uh, uh, that there the the situation in India suddenly in the last two weeks or so has taken a turn for the worse, basically. So there was. But I, I never thought that it will come to this issue of vaccine ban. But uh, there, there was this issue uh, of that um, the situation is not as good as India was doing quite well for the last four or five months. And suddenly in the last two, three weeks, the, th uh, the situation has gotten worse. And so uh, uh, the government has to show that something is being done in terms of the vaccination. Yeah. The, the variants are really throwing everybody's numbers off, aren't they, doctor? Uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, and uh, the variants are the uh, the issue. But uh, but uh, India again, I, I have a feeling that even from uh, from Indian perspective, also Canada still has a bit of time because Canada was not expecting AstraZeneca from India right now. It was expecting from mid April, uh, uh, April May. So uh, hopefully by that time, mid April and all, the things will uh, uh, settle down and perhaps the uh, things will not be the, the the delivery will not be too much impacted even from india well which uh, brings us my, to my next question and it's right into your area of expertise because yeah. uh, you've studied and, and of course worked with supply management for so many years yeah. uh in project management in a, in a, a difficult time like this doctor and, and let's face it we're in a crisis situation a global crisis situation Absolutely. how difficult is it to maintain a, a supply chain for something as, as intricate as this yeah, so the thing is that in general, sub man managing supply chain, and we have seen uh, at the, from the very beginning of the pandemic, from last time, it started with paper towels and uh, toilet papers and so on, and then it becomes the uh, PPEs, the personal protective equipment, and all these things, some grocery items. We saw that even the supply chains uh, in general are very difficult, global supply chains in the time of pandemic, it's very difficult to manage. Vaccine supply chains are even more difficult to manage because of the, all the uh, restrictions in terms of the temperature requirements, uh, uh, production uh, facility, uh, shutdowns and all these things. It becomes more difficult. And then 
over that there is this issue of a bit of vaccine nationalism that we want to protect us first before we help anyone else and it might be a natural uh, 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 reaction but that makes the supply chain even more difficult for us especially for a country like canada which doesn't have any domestic production as we can see south of the border they might have uh, done um, uh, quite badly in the initial part of the pandemic but because they have so much production uh, inside the country they have no problem as far as vaccines are concerned well, and we saw that with uh, the AstraZeneca concern and controversy a few weeks ago, didn't we? Uh, which obviously had an impact on our supply chain into Canada. Uh, what happened there is Pfizer just ramped up their production to Michigan, and, and they, they didn't Absolutely. seem to, to miss a beat, did they? Yeah, so indeed, the U.S. has told that means like they, they, are, they, they are not, it doesn't look like they are too much worried about whether AstraZeneca gets approved or not in U.S., because with, uh, with Pfizer and Moderna, and J&J, uh, Johnson & Johnson, they have enough supply to uh, inoculate uh, everybody and within May, perhaps June. Um, so, but, but we, are, we, have, we are very much dependent on Pfizer and Moderna. We will see what happens with AstraZeneca. And Johnson & Johnson, we have not, though we have approved, we have not heard anything about this supply yet. How difficult is it? to go from, uh, I'll make this as elementary as I can, from the drawing board uh, to get something on the shelf. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, for instance, let's use J&J as an example. Uh, they've, they've received their OKs. They've gone through the three trials that they need to go through. They've been approved by, in this case, Health Canada. Uh, production has to ramp up. I mean, this, this is new to everybody, isn't it, doctor? I mean, uh, it's not as if they could go to a warehouse and said, yeah, we got tons of this stuff already. Uh, yeah. to, to get from the, the approval to saying, okay, now mass production has to be an onerous task. Yeah. So, so this was one of the biggest things, uh, biggest positives out of the uh, pandemic was how quickly the vaccine was developed and how quickly was it produced? Because even in the normal vaccine cases, there was one part is vaccine development is difficult and then vaccine manufacturing or production is also a very complicated process and then the vaccine delivery. There are three parts, vaccine development, vaccine manufacturing and vaccine uh, delivery. All the three are very complicated process. And the, all the three happened within a year, at least for Pfizer and Moderna, within a year, year they had. And Pfizer, I can, one of the surprises to me at least was Moderna because it's a really new company I was not sure that whether it will, they will be able to do this manufacturing. The product, uh, the, the development, I can understand because they are very good sanding, but in, they didn't have any drugs before in the market, any vaccines before in the market. But they seems to be doing quite okay. And Pfizer, obviously, is a very, very uh, uh, well-known uh, pharmaceutical company, so they handled. I thought Johnson & Johnson will be able to handle the manufacturing a bit better, given their background. They have been a, a one of the world's uh, biggest uh, pharmaceutical company for a long time. Uh, that was a bit of a surprise for me. Uh, so, uh, uh, so it is a very, very difficult thing. Three parts: development, manufacturing, and distribution. And handling those for a, such a sensitive uh, thing like vaccines is a, is a monumental task, no doubt. 
you know, I, in our everyday lives, I mean, we see this, in, you know, but maybe, maybe don't label it as, as you just have. I mean, you know, if you go to the grocery store and say, you know, hey, where where are the carrots? Well, they're on back order. We've ordered them. They just haven't come in uh, because they don't seem to have the supply in the warehouse. Uh, on a much grander scale, that seems to be what's happening with vaccines. Countries like Canada have ordered them, uh, but they're on back order. I mean, that's, I guess, the phrase we could use uh, to put this in a commercial context. Uh, you know, the fact that we've ordered them uh, is inconsequential until they're actually on the shelf here and ready for use. Uh, it doesn't do us any good. Absolutely, and as you as you know well, even after it comes to the uh, comes to Canada, it is not good until it is at the exact place where we require and in the, on the hand of the people that we want to uh, want them to uh, give it in your case. So the thing is that this whole thing is ordering is just the first stage and securing the order is just the first stage. But until we get it and not only get it, until we put it in the correct time and the correct place, it is not. The vaccine is not the goal. The goal is vaccination and the end product is once it is injected onto the person that we want to be injected. When companies like, uh, well, in this case, uh, let's let's talk about AstraZeneca, the the, Europe, uh, the uh, Indian situation, uh, which said that they had some supply problems. Is that simply uh, overwhelmed with orders, or is is that uh, the, there's a, a staffing problem? What, what what are they dealing with there? Do you think? So I do not know the exact details, but it seems clearly there are two things happening. There there is uh, obviously the huge amount of order problem uh, order issue uh, because AstraZeneca is. Uh, is the vaccine for the masses, masses right? So the lots mm-hmm. of countries are dependent very much on AstraZeneca. So that's another issue. And I have a feeling that again, in, in a bit of vaccine nationalism in the sense that we want to keep just for in case the the numbers are going up, in case we want to uh, vaccinate more people, so that we want to keep a bit more uh, in India, and so we will control the exports at least for the time being. So there are two things happening. One is the uh, issue of uh, huge order and the uh, uh, production problems, but another issue is that a bit of that government wants to keep a bit more uh, in-house uh, inside the country and not export. I, I guess more correctly, we should be referring to it as Covishield, uh, that's being produced in yeah, India, which yeah. is it, it's a variant of it's it's a variant of the AstraZeneca, yeah, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, and exactly. Canada, and we've already received some of that from India, haven't we? Five hundred thousand, yeah, we have already received five hundred thousand, and we are expecting, I think, another one point five million by. Uh, sometime in May, yeah. Do you think that timeline is going to be altered now because of what they announced yesterday? Uh, I have a feeling that we will see. It, it, I think it will, to, the, uh, to some extent, depend on how the vaccine have progresses in India. If the numbers start creeping up, uh, which is creeping up, if it goes on going up, then there might be the timeline uh, uh, will be a problem. But... Otherwise, I think it might be okay because, again, we were not expecting the AstraZeneca uh, right away. We were expecting sometime in April, uh, uh, perhaps uh, second half of April. So if the numbers do not go up substantially in India, perhaps we will be okay even for AstraZeneca. And I think, as you said uh, very correctly, I think the EU thing is geared more towards UK. So my feeling is that uh, the supply to uh, Canada should be okay. Well, the speculation, and, and you're right, Doctor, at this one, it's only speculation, yeah. uh, is uh, the Institute, uh, the Serum Institute of India, uh, as you said, we're not expecting more from them until May. They suggest uh, that the pullback here is only going to last until the end of April. So uh, yeah. are we being overly optimistic if we assume that's not going to impact the Canadian delivery date? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, so we are we are we are trying to be as optimistic as possible, but it might happen. Uh, it might happen uh, uh, that AstraZeneca uh, will be uh, delayed to some extent. Uh, but but I really think I, I still think that uh, we should be okay. Maybe not 1.5 million. Maybe it will stretch a bit more towards early June or something like that. But uh, I think it, it will not be too much delayed. That's my feeling. Yeah. Well, I'm one of these, and I'm sure you are too. One of these folks that are still waiting to roll our sleeves up for this, and uh, you yes. know, the sooner uh, the better, as far as we're yeah. concerned, aren't we? Uh, I, I, great to get your perspective on this, and, and to, to lend your expertise to our discussion here, Doctor, because uh, a lot of consternation after the announcement yesterday, and we just want to make sure that we understand exactly what uh, the ramifications are going to be. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Oh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you again. Bye. Dr. Sabil Ray, of course, uh, who is an expert in supply management, uh, hasn't just studied it, but of course worked in it for many years in India. Uh, so his, uh, his expertise is, is extremely important in understanding exactly what's happening uh, with the announcements from yesterday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.